Thursday morning broadcast. The brand new book is entitled Not in God's Name, Confronting Religious Violence. The book is authored by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, someone who needs no introduction to, for this audience. Rabbi Sachs, of course, for a period of close to a quarter of a century, the chief rabbi of the United Kingdom, and um, somebody who has a plethora of, of books at this point, and is one of the most sought-after speakers uh, on the international Jewish scene. Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, welcome back to JM in the AM. Uh, good to be with you. A pleasure. Very good to be with you. I greatly appreciate that and a pleasure to speak with you. Congratulations on the brand new book. Thank you. We are in the midst, and this is really for the benefit of those who are hearing this conversation maybe days or weeks from now. Uh, we are in the midst of uh, watching, witnessing, and hearing about terror attacks in Israel and these terrible stabbings and other types of murderous episodes uh, that are going on. And uh, we, of course, have our brothers and sisters foremost in our hearts and minds, no matter where we are around the world. I, I, I hate to cut to the chase uh, when it comes to the topic of um, of uh, not in God's name, but are, are these attacks, in fact, being carried out in God's name? Unfortunately, it's clear they are. I mean, uh, Hamas, Hezbollah, uh, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, very different groups. But what they have in common is that they have a religious ideology. And uh, therefore, all of them justify violence in the name of God. And it seems to me that this is a real classic case of Chilul Hashem, of desecrating God's name. And uh, therefore, I, I wrote this book as a religious protest against religious violence, because there's no defense for it, there's no excuse for it. There are, are, are there any religions, one that might ask, that would justify this type of behavior? We know how the radicals feel, and those Islamic radicals that have unfortunately dominated the news, but is there any religion or mainstream religion that in any way would endorse this type of behavior? I don't think so. You know, the great religions have been around a long time, and the great religions are guardians of human memory. And anyone with the slightest amount of historical sense or memory, and don't forget Zachor is a fundamental command in Judaism, a right. command to remember, will know that violence undertaken for religious ends has always proved to be not only destructive but self-destructive and has never achieved any of its ends. Uh, the Crusades achieved nothing for the Crusaders. They took two or more centuries of warfare, they achieve nothing for Christianity whatsoever. Um, and the same is, is true of every other violence. Mm -hmm. There were violent human people, in uh, Jews, in the late Second Temple period. And uh, their violence sadly brought about Hurban Bayit Sheni, the destruction of the Second Temple. So Jews and Christians, and for that matter Muslims as well, can say from their personal memory, Yes, there were times when violence happened, just as it's happening today, and it never once advanced the cause, any cause, not a religious cause, not a political cause. Right. And that is what we really need to keep absolutely in mind. There is nothing that the Palestinians could have achieved by violence that they could not have achieved easier and more rapidly and more fully by ways of peace. So this is 
pure, irrational, destructive behavior, and it's a desecration of the name of God. So religion, by definition, has to be peaceful. The only way to achieve whatever ends one is seeking has to be, as you just mentioned, most effective through peace. Well, the truth is there is one justification and one only for violence, which is self-defense. Right. The Torah tells us in this week's parasha, you know, in the covenant that Hashem made with Noah, that uh, murder, the killing of an innocent human being, is not only a crime against humanity, it's a crime against God. Because God created man in his image. Therefore, we have a right to life because life is sacred. And if there's a right to life, there must be a right to self-defense. So, clearly, sometimes Israel has to defend itself. Sadly, it's had to defend itself pretty much throughout its 67-year history. But the truth is, peace always takes priority over violence. And Maimonides rules in his laws of war that no uh, violence is ever justified until all attempts at peace have failed. Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs is with us. The book is called Not in God's Name, Confronting Religious Violence. So, I I mean, I don't don't know if this psychological study is important or not, but so many are curious where this comes from, Rabbi Sachs. How is it that human beings can can resort to this type of activity? How is it that that even the slightest incitement, it seems, can take teenagers and older people and turn them into murderers? Well, look, uh, you know, last week we began reading the Torah again. And uh, it has uncanny relevance to where we are today. Because the Torah tells us in Parashat Bereshit that uh, the first religious act, Cain and Abel bring offerings to God, led to the first murder. Cain killed Abel. And we can understand why. I mean, we can understand why, because God accepted Abel's offering, but he didn't accept Cain's offering because he felt that it was an offering... um, in search of power, not in search of, of humility and obedience. And Cain then gets angry. You remember we've been reading these last couple of days about a day of rage. Mm-hmm. Cain is the first person in history to express rage. Right. And God warns him. He says, you know, if, if you do well, will, will you not find favor? But if you don't, then sin is waiting at the door. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Cain doesn't listen to God, and his rage takes him to commit an act of violence. People use violence as a means of getting their way without respect for others. Then I'll ask the question differently. What is it about religion that gets us so fired up as human beings? Uh, it's It's got nothing to do with religion and everything to do with us. Uh, the uh, little glitch in the system has got nothing to do with religion because think about the 20th century. The 20th century invented substitutes for religion. It said, let's not have religion unite us, let's be united by nationality, the nation state, or by race, the Aryan race, or by political ideology, Soviet communism. So those were three secular substitutes for religion. The nation-state created two world wars. The worship of race created the Holocaust. The worship of political ideology brought us Stalin and the KGB. 
So it's got nothing to do with religion and everything to do with human psychology. Mm. Which is why you've pointed out in the past, we've discussed on the air, and I don't mean to make light of this by bringing this example, but even in the arena of sports and entertainment, you see people get violent because of their passion for a certain team or concept. Absolutely. Violence is a an insistence that my wishes take precedence over your rights and your uh, responsibilities. Yeah. You, you so make... If I, if, sure. You know, if I can't win by means fair and, and proper, then right. I will use violence to get my way. Right. That... Of course, the end result of that, as we will read this uh, in, 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 in the synagogue this Shabbat, the result is a flood. The result is humanity destroys itself. Right. Uh, which is, I guess, why it is sometimes so difficult to remain calm, remain engaged. You've always spoken about the importance of conversation with people who disagree with you and those who come from varied backgrounds that you and others might come from. And it's so important. Yet, I mean, obviously, human beings find it an easier way out, just overreacting and carrying out that rage very yeah. often. Look, yesterday evening I was here in New York and I uh, did a session at the Council on Foreign Relations. And there were a number of Muslim figures there. Mm -hmm. And we, we really had a good and open conversation. There was real kinship between us, even friendship between us. We know that we have many political differences and certainly many religious differences. But we managed to achieve more by an hour of conversation them by a year of violence. Yeah. You actually mentioned two people in the acknowledgments of your book, um, which, I don't know, could be a little shocking or surprising that, that, that you would go ahead and do so. You have here an acknowledgment to, um, I don't have their names. Oh, here we go. We an acknowledgment to Prince El Hassan bin Talal and yep. Professor Akbar Ahmed, two figures who you, Rabbi Sachs, say over the years have inspired you with their generous and deeply humane vision of Islam. This might be a revelation to some people in this audience that there is a humane vision of Islam. Of course there's a humane vision of Islam, and uh, they are two very good representatives of it. Prince Hassan of Jordan has been a leading spokesman for religious tolerance. Over his entire lifetime, he's an outstanding spokesman for a way that, for a voice that sadly is not heard often enough in the Middle East. He's a very, very fine individual. Uh, the other person, and of course we came together over many things, uh, over Middle East politics, but we, we developed a friendship. This is a serious, serious religious moderate of broad humanity and compassion. Akbar Ahmed, I came to know because he was the High Commissioner for Pakistan uh, in in Britain um, at the time of the murder of the journalist Daniel Pearl, mm. remember, in 2002. Sure. Mm -hmm. And again, a very special person. I, I did a television program with him and with the father of the late Daniel Pearl, Judea Pearl, right. of the BBC. And uh, he remains, again, an advocate of tolerant Islam. That tolerant Islam uh, flourished uh, in Spain, for instance, in what it, we call Al-Andalus in uh, the 8th to the 12th centuries and brought about not a liberal democracy in today's sense, but at least a more tolerant environment than any other that existed in Europe in the Middle Ages. Does it exist today? Does tolerant Islam dominate in any countries today? 
I think the tolerant figures in Islam are de-voiced. Mm. We don't hear their voice. We hear the voice of the extremists. You, rem- you remind me of uh, Bridget Gabrielle with her famous quote, peaceful uh, peaceful uh, majorities are irrelevant. Uh, peaceful minority, uh, Peaceful majorities are irrelevant, she says. Peaceful minorities are the only building blocks out of which you construct a, violent, a viable future. You have to cultivate those peaceful yeah. well, well, she, well, she claims that the, the peaceful ones are the majority, but they're just irrelevant because of the, the noise and the, and the murderous you know, clamoring of the extremists. Yeah, of course. We're, we're in a situation today um, in which those famous words of the Irish poet W.B. Yeats apply. The, 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 the best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Right. You don't strike back by adopting the same violence or vehemence. You, you, you move people on by showing people that violence consistently fails. It makes life worse for everyone concerned. It never achieved any significant objective. And eventually people realize that all the hopes they pinned on the people of violence turned out to be disappointed. They brought neither freedom nor prosperity, nor did they give their children hope for the future. Mm. And I think the sooner we marshal the moderates and stand together and make our voice heard, the better for all concerned. Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs is with us. The book is called Not in God's Name, Confronting Religious Violence, a shocking book's release, Division of Penguin, Random House. And this might be, based on what you just said, the most important part of this conversation. Because you do go into detail in the book about the beginnings of of um, a religion infiltrating relationships and ending up in murder. You just mentioned the story from Sefer Bereshit. And you talk about love and hate and how it dominates the book of Genesis and that fine line that we all know between love and hate. Sometimes the negative passion we have for somebody can only be for somebody who normally we are very positively passionate about. And one wonders if we have these biblical roots and we have this relationship with our cousins that are that is so intense, is there any hope? Is there any way that we in fact can infiltrate their minds and get rid of this incitement and and not have folks on the other side who are teenagers and older who want to be murderers of those of us who are peaceful and those of us who have a Western philosophy? Well, look, uh, the clearest evidence I can give you is that this book, Not in God's Name, which has just come out here in the States, has been out for four months in Britain. And the most enthusiastic readers of the book so far have been young Muslims. Hmm. And uh, because they're searching for another way, they can see uh, the Middle East going up in flames. They can see that the main victims of Islamist terror... Uh, other Muslims. Yeah. The radicals against the moderates, the Shia against the Sunni. I mean, if ISIS prevails, if ISIS conquers the Middle East, then the lives of 200 million Shia Muslims are in danger. Right. I mean, this is... Muslims are dying. And so are Christians in the Middle East. Devastating. There's a kind of ethnic cleansing of Christians taking place in the Middle East. So what I'm saying in this book is, for heaven's sake, let Jews, Christians, and moderate Muslims stand together, because if we stand together and let our voice be heard, 
We vastly outnumber the radicals. We really do. But so far, we haven't stood together, and so far, that moderate voice has not been heard. Mm. So it exists in Britain. I know it. I've lived with it for 22 years. I've had very good relations with young Muslims in Britain. And uh, now, obviously, I want to enlist uh, young Muslims in the United States as yeah. well. I, I and we'll see about going global. Yeah, I understand that. Uh, but but you've, you have visited college campuses in the United Kingdom, and now I'm sure you've had a greater opportunity to visit college campuses in the United States. And you see when there are episodes where, where there is violence in Israel and where Jews are being murdered by terrorists, all of a sudden protests and demonstrations in favor of the PA and in favor of finally annihilating the Jews start popping up. It is difficult to believe that there is hope and that those young Muslims you're meeting with can transform things as long as this type of disease continues to spread through global campuses. Listen, I spent a lot of my time on British campuses over 22 plus years as chief rabbi, a lot of time. And I have to tell you, whenever you make the case simply, young Muslims, most of them, seriously agree with you. And my case is very simple. I say to young Muslims, listen, you are concerned with the future of Palestinian children, right? And they say, of course, right. I say, and so am I. So am I. I want to see the Middle East offer a viable future for Israeli young children and for Palestinian young children, for Jewish children and for Muslim children. Are we agreed on this? And they say yes. And then I say, if we choose the way of peace, there will be a future for those children. They will have an economy. They will have a job. They will have career prospects. They will have an education. They will go on to do good things in the world. But if there's violence, then every single one of those elements will close down and the end result will be children who are destroyed of hope, disfigured by hate, and injured by violence. Which do you prefer? And the truth is, when you set the argument out in those terms, young Muslims listen to you and agree with you. The hotheads, of course, don't. You can't argue with somebody who denies your right to be. But the vast majority of people on campus, the vast majority of Muslims on campus, actually um, listen to you and they say, you know what, what you say makes sense. Yeah, I, I have so much more I need to ask you, but but just on this point then, when, when you hear about the BDS movement and its growth on campuses and the enthusiasm behind it, what do you think then? I think we have not done our job, to be honest with you. We should have gone out there and educated young campus youth. We've let the argument fail by default. I, um, you know, it's, it's a difficult thing to do. But I want to tell you, I stayed very close to British students um, from, uh, you know, the time the peace process broke down until I left uh, my job as chief rabbi in 2013. Mm -hmm. We stayed close to the non-Jewish students. I had them, the leadership of the British students, the non-Jews, uh, to our house every year. We did a reception for them. I did discussion groups with them. And the end result is for those, all those years, the National Union of Students never came out against Israel because we stayed in conversation with them, we, we respected them, and we took the argument to them. Interesting. You write in your book, the best way of curing anti-Semitism is to get people to experience what it feels like to be a Jew. Sounds very Kalbachian. What do you mean by it? 
<laughs> I tell the story of uh, a young man called Segedi, who was a leading anti-Semite in Hungary. Oh, yeah, that, that, that video went viral at that time, if I recall. Pardon? That video went viral at that time, if I recall. Well, there, there was a young anti-Semite in right. Hungary. He was a, a, a head of a senior in the Jobbik Party, which right. is right wing and pretty fascist party. Yeah, he hated Jews, and he turned out to be a Jew. Right, <laughs> he's become a Bolshevik and all the rest. Of right, it. and uh, it just shows you that if you put yourself on the other side, suddenly your perspective on the world changes, yeah. and you're able to uh, cure the hate. Yeah. And I don't think there's any other way of curing. Kalbach, Kalbach used to say in his yard site's two weeks from today, so why not cite him? Kalbach used to say he could solve the Arab-Israeli conflict if he, he and his chevra went to meet every Arab in the Middle East. There's something to that, I guess, huh? Well, you want to solve religious conflict, you do it three ways. Either by music, or by food, or by saying Elohim together. Over non-alcoholic beverages, if need be. Those are the three okay, secrets, the, huh? These are the ways you create friendship. And friendship manages to find a way where pol politics and violence fail. A good kiddish and a good kumzitz, and you're on the way, huh? Well, listen, you know, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not giving you a kumbaya, naive, <laughs> utopian vision. I have lived right. with this situation in a leadership role for many years. And I'm telling you, this is the way you do it. Hmm. And look, the book is fascinating. It's called Not in God's Name, Confronting Religious Violence, uh, Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. I just, th my frustration sometimes, especially the way you paint the history of the Jewish people and our relationship with our cousins, the Arabs, it, 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 it sometimes just feels predestined. It sometimes feels a lot like, you know, Halachahi, Ace of Soneus Yaakov. And that there's not much we can do to alter that. Is that, a, is that just a, a completely misguided perspective? I'm sorry? Shimon Bayochai says, Halacha hi Esav Senez Yaakov. Right. Yeah? Right. The, and this is Rabbi Shimon Bayochai's comment. Right. On that passage where Jacob and Esau meet. Correct. For the last time. The morning after Jacob's wrestling match with the angel. Right. And you remember what it says, and Asaph came towards him and he embraced him. Correct. And he kissed him. Correct. And this is what Shimon Bayochai says, because you've only quoted half of it. Mm. It says, Halacha, she'esav sonet Yaakov. Right. It is generally true that Esau hates Jacob. Ela ba'oto sha'ah. But at that moment, nechmaru rachamav, he was filled with compassion, and he kissed him with a complete, sincere heart. So the very quote you gave me tells us that Shimon Bar Yochai believed that whatever is generally the case, when two brothers genuinely meet, there can be a genuine embrace. I do wish people would quote the second half. <laughs> Well, I'm blaming this on the yeshiva system, frankly. <laughs> but, um, so, Always read the end of a sentence, you know? I mean, because sometimes it's interesting. So if that's the case, you would argue that Abu Mazen, at some point in his life, could, in theory, express real compassion and or love for members of the Jewish faith. 
you know, there, there was a brilliant psychotherapist. He's still alive, and bless him, um, Aaron Beck. Yeah? Mm-hmm. He, he is the co-founder of something called Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. He's an Adelaide and a Shama. He's a beautiful, beautiful, wonderful person, and one of the greatest psychotherapists in the world. And he wrote a book whose title is Prisoners of Hate. Hate is a prison. You allow yourself to enter that room, you'll never get out again. And what I say to Abu Mazen is, you have imprisoned your people in hate. And the time has come to give them freedom. And what you have to do is open the door. Stop preaching hate. Stop inciting violence. Start educating your people's children to respect the people with whom they are going to have to live. And you will achieve more by that one act than all the years of violence and terror put together. Amazing. So there is hope. Well, I don't know. It's up to them. It's not up to us. But we keep talking and we keep the door open because this is bad for everyone. Can't thank you enough for joining us this morning. Good luck with the brand new book and uh, what you're doing in general. Not, not that you need my accolades, but uh, the influence that uh, you're... Listen, it's great to talk to you. It really is. And uh, all the best to all your listeners. Thank you so much, Rabbi Sachs. The book is called Not in God's Name, Confronting Religious Violence. Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. It's been out four months in uh, Great Britain. It is now out in the United States. It's available everywhere. You know how to, you know how to shop for books these days, folks. <laughs> you could find it everywhere. Shotgun Books, I thank them. Division of Penguin Random House. And I want to give a special thank you to Alti Carper and her staff for uh, helping us uh, set this up and giving me the opportunity to uh, ask questions of Rabbi Sachs. A very enlightening conversation. More coming up. You're listening to a Thursday morning broadcast at JM in the AM. <laughs>